0: You're listening to a selection of stories from this week's Morning Ireland. Going to turn now to the news that the
1: Minister for Finance, Pascal Donoghue, has been elected as President of the group of Eurozone Finance Ministers. This means he'll chair and to some extent set the agenda for the group, which is facing a number of serious challenges, not least of which is the economic collapse caused by COVID-19. And Pascal Donoghue joins us now on the line. Good morning.
2: Good morning, Rachel.
1: The EU, uh, as we've been saying, is facing a mammoth challenge, and there have been divisions over how to tackle that challenge. Do those disagreements remain?
2: Uh, There are differences of view regarding the uh, best way forward for Europe and for all of its member states. Uh, But at a time in which very big decisions are being made and at times of great challenges, there's always going to be differences of opinion regarding the best way forward. It's the nature of politics. It's the nature of how Europe looks to make progress. And as great as the challenges are, I'm very confident that we, that Europe will rise to them and that by working with my fellow members of the Eurogroup, we will be able to find common ground and make progress.
1: So what's your role then? Where do you see that common ground?
2: Uh, I see the common ground originating in the shared desire that all of my colleagues have to look at how we can get jobs back in the face of huge economic difficulty due to COVID-19 and get national and European economies growing again. So I see there being a focus on trying to find a way to get agreement on the recovery fund. And then in the aftermath of that taking care to ensure we've the right budgetary policies to get people back to work. That common ground is there. There's, There's discussion, there's negotiation regarding how we deliver it. But during my campaign, it was apparent to me that whether you're from the east or the west, the north or the south, whether you're a big economy or a small one, there is a shared urgent desire to do that and it'll be my job to play a role in turning that into a reality quickly.
1: There has been disagreement though over how it's decided who gets what from the recovery fund. Will those rules, will the formula be looked at again?
2: Well that's actually a decision that the European Commission makes uh, and uh, at the risk of going into lots of detail very early in the morning, there's different parts of the, un- diff- of the European Union that play a different role. Mm, but do you think uh, it's something they decisions. should
1: look at again?
2: Well, this is actually what the Taoiseach and the Irish government are now engaging in. And of course, I play my full role in this, Rachel. Uh, we have a European Council meeting happening at the end of next week, where all of the heads of government and heads of state come together and they are discussing this issue. And we've made clear, uh, the Taoiseach the have made clear that the allocation that is available to us is something that we believe needs to be appropriate for the scale of challenge that we have here in Ireland. And of course, we'll all be working now to make progress on that from an is Irish it, point is of it view. Is it
1: your view then that as things stand, it's not appropriate?
2: Yes, as it stands at the moment, um, I believe the way in which the funding is been allocated to a country like Ireland does not reflect the challenge that we have here. You've hundreds of thousands and we've hundreds of thousands of your listeners here this morning that are now experiencing uh, job losses, shocks about their income, concerns about their jobs, that even at the start of the year would have looked impossible. And the way in which funding has been allocated, particularly to a small country like Ireland, uh, we do believe change needs to be made on that. And that is the work that will be happening now at the end of next week, uh, and uh, as I said a moment ago, I'll be playing my role from an Irish point of view in doing that.
1: The proposed digital tax is also likely to be back on the agenda over the coming months. Will your position, your new job, will it make it more difficult for Ireland to keep saying no? Uh,
2: is, actually, it is uh, an issue that, of course, during the campaign and over the last number of weeks, uh, there was uh, a discussion and focus on from a, a media and public point of view, which I completely understand. But actually, in the campaign itself and in asking colleagues for votes, uh, the Irish view on issues like this was well understood by ultimately everybody who voted for me, and even then by if the most Euro of them group.
1: don't agree with you.
2: Uh, actually, there are many colleagues who do understand my point of view, and all colleagues in endorsing my candidacy last night while some may have supported other candidates at the start of the process, do understand the Irish view on this issue. And my view overall is that we do need to change how we tax digital companies. They will need to pay more tax both now and the future, and Ireland will play its role in doing that. My concern all along has been is that we need to find a way of doing this. That doesn't cause further difficulties to global and world trade that would have a huge impact on the Irish economy. So, I believe we can get agreement on this matter. I've simply been making the case let's find a way of doing it that has all the big countries in the world playing their role in it and reducing the risk for Ireland and Europe. So, you are are open to change.
1: You are open to change.
2: Uh, I, I've said, indeed, uh, in this negotiation in the past, that Ireland is open to change in this matter, but it's one that needs to be agreement-based, both within Europe and across the world. We need to find the safe way of doing it. You know, on a very broad level, collapse in cooperation and tax for Ireland uh, is very, very damaging for small open economies. We need to avoid that happening. And then, in finding change and securing that change. We need to do that in such a way that doesn't add to the economic difficulties that we have. Uh, and I believe as we move through this year and early next year, I think there'll be an opportunity to find agreement.
1: On a related matter, the European Court, the, the, the sort of the second court of the EU, is due to rule next week on the question of the money which the EU Commission says is owed by Apple. 13 billion euro people will remember that decision by the European Commission a couple of years back. Could, could all of this, could it be a bit embarrassing for you next week if Ireland fi- finds itself at odds with the European institutions again?
2: Well, I don't want to prejudge what the ruling is going to be, uh, because, of course, that's a legal matter. And when the decision is made, there'll be an opportunity for I and the Irish government to comment on us. Uh, but again, Rachel, uh, our involvement in this case, my view on this matter, was well understood by all who were involved in the voting process. And indeed, the fact that the Apple ruling is due next week uh, was known by all during this week. Uh, so it's a matter that when the uh, ruling does become clear, there'll be an opportunity for me to comment on us at that point.
1: Pascal Donoghue, thank you for joining us this morning.
3: Brazil's President Jair Bolsonaro has tested positive for coronavirus. Over 1.6 million people are reported to have had positive tests in Brazil and over 65,000 people are known to have died from COVID-19 infection. Mr Bolsonaro has repeatedly played down risks of what he called the little flu or the sniffles. He has opposed lockdowns which he says hurt the economy. The executive director of the World Health Organization Dr Mike Ryan wished President Bolsonaro a speedy and full recovery from the disease adding I think the message to us all is we are vulnerable to the virus tim vickery is a reporter based in rio de janeiro i spoke to him earlier and put it to him that the surprise was not that brazil's president had caught the virus but that it had taken so long
4: i think that's that's fair comment he's been merrily wandering around the country provoking agglomerations he's been shaking hands pressing the flesh uh, and he's done much of it without a mask uh, it's the fourth time that he's been tested and i think it's it's a fair comment it's it's uh, the surprise is that it's taken him so long to contract the virus
3: his survival politically and literally hinges on the outcome of his illness if he survives will it strengthen his position that the coronavirus is just a little flu
4: well at the moment uh, he's saying that he feels absolutely fine uh, he said that he didn't feel too clever on monday he had a high fever on monday and some aches and pains but uh, speaking to the press on Tuesday, he declared he declared himself absolutely fine in in full conditions to do his job. He said he wanted to go for a walk, but uh, the doctors would didn't allow him. Um, this is being seen, I think, internationally as as a huge defeat. For Bolsonaro, the the the, uh, the the man who's been the world's leading denier of the importance of coronavirus, finally contracting the the uh, the, the disease, um, but he certainly doesn't seem to be seeing it that way. In fact, uh, so far, um, the fact that he's feeling fine uh, would seem, in his mind, to reinforce the view. Um, That this is only uh, a little flu, and he's using some very strange metaphors. He's saying that the the virus is a little bit like rain. It rains on, it's going to rain on some people and, and not on others. He seems to have ignored the fact... That one person infects another, and many people who he has been in contact with since Friday are frantically having themselves tested. Now he said to to that uh, his message to young people was: well, don't worry too much because if you get it, it's not going to be particularly severe. The problem is not the young person getting it; it's 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 who the young person then infects. You've got to remember here that uh, on March the 22nd, Bolsonaro predicted." That uh, the death toll from coronavirus in Brazil would not exceed 800. We're already approaching 67,000. So, that particular argument, he has lost, and he will be judged by the scale of that failure. But for the moment, uh, he, is, well, he, he really can't change course. He's gone too far down one particular road to, to change course. He's, he's left, his, his, uh, him and his government, very little room for manoeuvre on this issue. And there's no sign of the death toll slowing down. In fact, the specialists uh, seem to be believing now that the peak actually won't come until August. What's it like where you are in Rio? Well, Rio is the second most affected city in um, in the country after Sao Paulo. Of those sixty, nearly sixty seven thousand deaths, more than ten thousand have come from Rio. Um, you have to, I think, you have to see Brazil a little bit as a kind of United States of South America. The uh, the state is divided into twenty seven states, a huge country, and uh, it's the local authorities, the state governors and city mayors, who have the authority to to uh, declare lockdown. Or or, or social distancing and closed commerce. Bolsonaro has always been against this. So there's been a very confused message all along, with different levels of government often wanting different things. Two health ministers have gone. One was sacked because he was quite effectively uh, arguing the need for social distancing. His replacement didn't stay too long before leaving, also uh, disagreeing with the president. And this, this fundamental lack of clarity from different, different levels of government has undermined greatly the efforts to to uh, um, to, to bring in, in into effect effective social distancing just over the, over the last few days in Rio there's been a gradual opening up um, with possibly disastrous consequences because huge agglomerations in the bars of some of the richest areas of Rio uh, and uh, it's uh, I think to be feared that in a couple of weeks, those uh, th- this uh, lack of social distancing will be reflected in uh, in the death toll
3: you've been living in brazil for a very long time now and you've seen a lot of change during that time how would you characterize the health of your home now
4: Well, uh, Brazil is extremely polarised. Everything is polarised and politicised. And I think what has happened over the last three and a half months, the country's response to, to to the coronavirus will go down in the annals of human incompetence. They had a number of advantages. The principal advantage that they had over, say, Italy or Spain was time um, they saw what was happening there they had time to prepare and brazil does have a health service based on on the british Nat- national health service it's it, it's rudimentary it's underfunded but it is there unlike say the united states the death toll in brazil would be far far higher without that health system but despite the, the these advantages and despite the advantage of time and despite the advantage of considerable experience in dealing with pandemics brazil has performed very very poorly neighboring paraguay 20 deaths uruguay 28 deaths. These are much, much smaller countries. Um, Argentina, uh, slightly bigger, uh, uh, 1,500 deaths. All of these countries have performed much, much better than Brazil has. Uh, And uh, the the fact that it's still being politicised, the use of masks is being politicised. President Bolsonaro recently uh, vetoed an obligation on people to wear masks in public spaces, such as churches and shops. Um, It's very, very disturbingly polarized uh, and uh, very worrying that the coronavirus is nowhere near being brought under control.
3: That's Tim Vickery in Rio de Janeiro. The Royal Institute
5: of Architects of Ireland is this morning announcing the winner of its Public Choice Architecture Award for this year the result of a competition to find the country's most popular new building or restoration the public was invited to select from a shortlist of 33 entries and more than 12,000 people took the opportunity to vote Kieran O'Connor is president of the institute he joins us now very good morning to you Kieran now before I invite you to announce the winner exclusively here on Morning Ireland just give us a little reminder of the competition because there was really quite an extraordinary range of entries, wasn't there, for this?
6: There certainly was, Brian. I mean, the entries range from major public buildings to house extensions and everything in between, and also include research, universal design, and sustainability awards. So it's a very, very wide, broad search of awards, uh, and what we're looking for there, really, is a watermark of quality uh, in that shortlist. And then that shortlist, was offered to the public for voting, and there's been an exceptional uh, level of voting um, to arrive where we are today.
5: At the winner. So, and yes. the winner
6: is? The winner is a, a project that has does all the right things. It's about urban renewal. It's about the renewal of a brownfield site. It's about supporting regeneration in the town it's based in. And counteracts the sort of hollowing out that's been happening in our towns by providing mixed family-sized homes and housing for the elderly in Drogheda at Scarlet Street. And the scheme is by McKevitt King, architect's, a local architect's father-son uh, practice. And they have, have, have won the award by a nose in the uh, voting.
5: T- Tooting Meadow is the name of the development.
6: Shooting Meadow, and it's on Scarlet Street in 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 Drogheda. And mm-hmm. Drogheda, it's it was this old site that belonged to the fire brigade, with the local authority made available to a housing association, and them working with our architect have turned what was not the greatest of sites into mm-hmm. a community cent centred and orientated project that maximises the tangible and the intangible values. Uh, that people have come to look for. So it does ecological things, it does architectural things, it does functional things, and all of them supplement and support each other.
5: And it has proved popular, obviously, with the public uh, in winning in winning this vote. On the line, we also have uh, Adrian King, who is the project architect from McKevitt King Architects. A very good morning to you, Adrian. Congratulations on this, uh, this fantastic good award. Morning. Well done. Well done. Good, good, good morning, Brian. Thank you very much. Uh, tell us, tell us about the project. I mean, it's a challenging enough uh, set of requirements, wasn't it? Uh, Kieran gave us a sense there of the site. It's, a, it's in the town. It's an old fire station there. You had a very specific uh, set of requirements uh, set for you.
7: Yeah, a- absolutely. Um, I suppose the, the project came about in twenty fifteen when Loud County Council invited um, approved housing bodies to submit proposals uh, for designs on the site. And um, we, we worked uh, with the North and East Housing Association um, to pr- prepare a feasibility study for the site and we submitted that to the local authority and we were happy to say that uh, it, the Loud County Council selected the proposal as the successful project Um so so so, uh, you mentioned there about the old fire station site, which was a landmark building in the site for for a number of years, and um, we we were very interested in the context, in the urban context, and the historical context. Uh, the site was was previously land that was on the old Siena convent. Uh, site which mm-hmm. had these beautiful mature trees and a pocket park so the key thing for us in terms of the concept was to um give something back to scarlet street the streets uh, by opening up the site mm. uh, to 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 the mature trees and, and and the beautiful setting um so 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 that that was really the key simple idea uh,
5: for, and at, for,
4: the, hor- for at the, the heart at the heart
5: yeah, and at the heart of this, providing homes for families and for single people, and that's a key part of the development, isn't it? 15 dwellings, but that are, are very mu- much mixed in terms of what they provide.
7: Absolutely, there's, there's a d- diverse mix in terms of the demographic that uh, the, the project will cater for, so you've got families and you've got single people, and these are located in the centre of the town, which are really accessible to shops and restaurants and bars, and it's People-friendly design, which has been very, very sensitively built in, in within the community. Um, the practice is a local community and a, a, a local business working mm-hmm. in the community. And I suppose we're just d- d- delighted to, to be here t- 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 today, um,
5: having yeah. received this yeah. award. Yeah. Kieran, um I mean I'll, I'll, perhaps because it was a housing project and a social housing project, that also maybe helped to capture people's imagination when they were voting in this but but t- talk to us a little bit about the role that you think architects and architecture can play in addressing our housing crisis.
6: Well, I think is crucial, and you're right, Brian, this is really a snapshot of public interest because the, the projects that fought it out for the one, two, and three were the type of issues that are arising for the public. So it's housing and schools and such like. And the aspect that the architect brings to that is that overview um, of all those components, the, the functional, the practical, the financial, the management, and the imaginative and what the architect does by leading the design team, brings those things together, works with their client to give an end product that's more than the sum of its parts. And that's really what architects do. They they bring imagination and design quality, mm-hmm. but also functional quality and management of the contract and finances of the project to bring home a scheme that's better than what it could have been.
5: Yeah, And just a word about the, the runners-up in this um, second place went to
6: went to uh, uh, Kylmer Kylmer in, in Galway uh, by AXO Architects, and third place was Skolmurra National School in Monavay in County Galway.
5: Mm. And, and Adrian, for you and your practice, um, uh, it's obviously a great uh, award to, to win, because I suppose a lot of the time, you know, people complain about architecture. So, well, not a lot of the time, but sometimes <laughs> there are complaints about architecture, maybe <laughs> a feeling that architects are at, at odds with the public mood. But to have this public validation of your work, uh, is that something special? it's it's amazing it's a very proud day for the office
7: um t- to be recognized uh, by the public mm-hmm. um tr- through the RAI uh, at a national level is is a huge honor as right. Kieran mentioned there the practice um has been set up by Turlock McEvitt um in 1973 and his son J- James McEvitt um is a director in the practice so mm-hmm. together um there's been a Great and a very significant contribution right. to the north and east architectural heritage. So, all
5: right. well, most
7: people who work in the office are we all are actually Trata natives. So it's a great news story for Trata and to be part right. of the the story. Um, it's it's a dream come true. We're absolutely delighted. Our
5: congratulations our congratulations to you and the practice and our thanks for you to coming on and also to Kieran for talking to us this morning.
0: Saturday night in Dublin city centre, Dame Lane, just off Dame Street, hundreds of people drinking, shoulder to shoulder on the street, a DJ playing music. No one is wearing a face mask. This was the scene captured by several people on video and posted on social media on the first weekend since the easing of restrictions a week ago today. This included pubs which sell food costing nine euro being able to reopen. The images, also witnessed by GP Dr Matthew O'Toole, prompted him and others to warn of a second wave of coronavirus here within a matter of weeks. There were 29 new confirmed cases of COVID-19 here over the weekend. We are joined now by Donal O'Keefe, who is CEO of the Licensed Vintners Association, and by Joe Barry, former Professor of Population Health Medicine at Trinity College. You're both very welcome and thank you for being with us. Donal O'Keefe, let me begin with you. Um, Have you been able to establish where these people got their alcohol, which bar or pub sold it to them?
8: Yeah, there's three sources of alcohol as far as we can see in this scenario. Uh, There are a number of pubs selling for takeaway, selling draft beer out through windows. There's equally a small number of restaurants selling alcohol for takeaway. And then there's obviously traditional supermarket off license business where people are buying their alcohol to arrive to that part of town with their alcohol already purchased.
0: But those bars aren't allowed to sell takeaway alcohol to people who then remain within the vicinity, are they? I mean, takeaway is meant to be taken home.
8: Exactly. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a shocking situation. It's disgraceful business. It should not be happening. But selling alcohol, um, you know, pints of beer out through a window or through a hatch is actually legal. That's the weakness in the legislation. It was a, inconceivable, you know, three months ago that pubs would be involved in this type of business. We, we always want our customers to come to the premises, beyond the premises, have use of... The facilities, our staff, our service, Um, this situation was never contemplated, but it's causing huge problems in town now. It's very important to realize that this is a separate issue, though, from pubs reopening. Pubs reopening for food last Monday have to follow the guidelines. We've been engaging with the Gardaí, very much welcome uh, Operation Navigation, which is inspecting compliance with that guidelines. We think that is the correct way to go and the right way for businesses to to conduct themselves this is a separate issue of on-street drinking. It's been there forever at a low level and has but beco- has reached uh, you know, very serious, very worrying, very dangerous proportions. Of the but last Donald, they're
0: not, they're not following the guidelines if they're knowingly selling takeaway alcohol to people who are remaining standing in front of them drinking it.
8: Yeah, correct. And the Garda need to deal with that. The law is clear. If alcohol is sold for takeaway, it cannot be consumed within 100 metres of the premises. That's difficult for pubs to enforce, but they should. They are, the pubs that are knowing allowing it, allowing that alcohol to be consumed in, on public streets and laneways around our pubs, should stop that business. The Guardian must intervene now to deal with this.
0: Professor Joe Barry, Tony Holohan's warning from a a few weeks back that he was particularly concerned about young people at the moment because more than a third of new cases, he said, were under the age of 35. What are your worries this morning after witnessing the events over the weekend?
9: Well, I suppose, like a lot of your listeners, I'm quite worried, um, Audrey. uh, Some of this has been, I think, predictable, because Donald has outlined some of the weaknesses in the current legislation, and we have a a long history of that, uh, problems in alcohol consumption in the country, which people are well aware of. Uh, I have a certain amount of sympathy for the pubs, because the, the false Ireland guidelines that were published uh, about two weeks ago in advance of the reopening of the pubs that were serving food, are very hard to to enforce, actually. Um, and one of the big worries I would have, I was involved in the frontline in the HSE over the last three months in contact tracing, uh, and it says that if people go to pubs and get drink uh, ordered and have it you know, even on the premises, they've got to give their contact details because the only way our public health colleagues will be able to follow up outbreaks which will happen is if they know who, ha- who has been in contact with the people who are in- infected. Um, and the thing about young people, of course, is they're, they're not going to get usually terribly badly affected themselves and they may not even know they've got the virus because they could be asymptomatic. But
0: that's so not the case across the board, obviously.
9: Problems. Pardon?
0: That's not the case across the board for young people, obviously. There have been young people who have been very seriously ill and yeah, some no, who have died.
9: The point I'm making, uh, Audrey, is that most young people don't really observe uh, social distancing, and that's not today or yesterday. That's has on over quite a, quite a long time. Whereas, lots of members of the population are actually taking it very seriously and and are, are staying away from pubs and things like that. Um, so, I think there's two things that need to be done. I mean, I hear that the the Gardaí and the Health Service, uh, the Health and Safety Authority, are going to be uh, inputting into the review of what's working and not. I, I do think public health people need to be involved in that review today with the cabinet because um, at the end of the day we all want a sort of a, an orderly return to normality and the, the, what happened last night and what probably will happen again uh, as donald says you know there are lots of weaknesses in the system um is is inevitably unfortunately going to lead to more spikes uh, and that is something that none of us in the country want and um, pre-covid pubs were the safest place um, to drink alcohol because they were well stewarded and, and we saw a lot of problems with home drinking during the, the lockdown and I think that the off licenses that Donald mentioned are, are actually the, the supermarkets are a big problem. Uh, okay let, let, let me just finally bring m- in
0: Donald O'Keefe again at this point. Donal O'Keefe, if if the scenes that were witnessed on Saturday night are repeated there's a high likelihood isn't there of pubs and bars having to close again?
8: Yeah, we're hugely concerned that the actions of an irresponsible few could damage the entire industry. You know, it's very damaging for the reputation of pubs in Dublin, what's going on. It's very damaging for the image of the city. It's unacceptable uh, that people are allowed to drink alcohol on streets, in laneways, on public places, in and around the city centre. Um, And we are calling on the Gardaí to try and deal with the situation it's it's really concerning from a public health perspective and it's really concerning from the recovery of our business uh, perspective
0: we will leave it there for now thank you both very much donal o'keefe ceo of the licensed vintners association and joe barry professor of population health medicine A pandemic
1: of missing and stolen dogs. That's what animal groups are calling a spate of disappearances and suspected dog thefts all over the country. Kian McCormack has the story. What's been happening, Kian?
10: Well, Rachel, dogs are going missing all over the country. You just have to look online. There are social media pages dedicated, dedicated to missing and stolen dogs. One such page is called Missing Dogs Ireland. It's on Facebook. It has over 15,000 members. And its administrator, Lynn Cullen, says there has been a sharp rise in dog disappearances.
6: Well, I am doing This, about 10 years now, the last few weeks, it has just got out of hand. It's, It's actually like a pandemic of missing and stolen dogs. Every single hour of the day, somebody's dog is gone. Missing, stolen, never to be seen again.
10: You helped reunite a dog with its owner in Limerick. What happened?
6: I helped reunite a dog that had been missing for two weeks, and three weeks later, the dog was stolen again.
1: Ken, what's driving this theft? Why now?
10: Well, the market appears to be driving it and why now? There's just a bigger demand now. Charities like the DSPCA say more people decided to get dogs during the pandemic because they're at home more and this means prices have shot up. Uh, Pete Roach has watched this closely in Galway.
11: We have five little miniature Jack Russells that we're very proud of. There's quite a phenomenal demand for uh, such, I know that before the lockdown, the value of a miniature Jack Russell would be somewhere in the region of 100 to 150, maybe 200 max. Right now, on any of those sites, they are asking in the region of any, anywhere between 600 and 1,000 euro for six and seven week old pups. They are being stolen left, right, and centre to satisfy a gluttony that's out there by some who are willing to steal and sell them on at, at, at prices like I, I just quoted. Very fortunately, a very good uh, an associate of ours gave me the tip-off that our little breeding pair, our breeding trio, were going to be lifted. Now, I can tell you, again that we had a miniature stolen on the before. It broke the hearts of a lot of people in our house. Uh, we don't want a repeat of it. And to be honest, microchipping or not, they'll still steal them. So it's a word of caution to people. Mind what you have. Don't leave them unattended.
10: Don't leave your dogs unattended Pete Roach is also a Fine Gael Councillor in Galway and he plans to raise this issue at Galway's county's joint policing committee and meanwhile the dog charity there which is called Modra is deeply concerned here's its co-founder Marina Fiddler
12: Unfortunately, it, there has always been dogs going missing, uh, alleged stolen, but it does have to seem to have ramped up a lot at the moment now. But I know that from some of the dogs that have been stopped at the porch, that some of these are adult dogs that have been taken from somewhere. We're very concerned about the fact that the price of dogs is rising um, and that they're seen as so lucrative now because obviously it will encourage people to steal or to take dogs that they find and not give them back. It will also encourage unscrupulous people who think that they can make easy money by breeding a dog. Um, And so, yes, we're very concerned about it.
1: Marina Fidler, there of Madra, and obviously this isn't just a Galway problem; it's nationwide. You've been talking to the DSPCA in Dublin.
10: Yeah, that's right. It's concerned. It says there's been an increase in the number of animals going missing, but it hasn't been inundated with reports of stolen dogs. Here is the DSPCA's Gillian Bird.
13: We're always concerned when animals go missing um, because it's it's tragic for the family when an animal goes missing. Um, absolutely. And if there is now a trend in people stealing animals, we have to be very concerned as to sort of say, well, why are they stealing them? Are they stealing puppies? Are they stealing adults? Are they specifically stealing animals? Have they scouted them out to see? Is it a breeding female? Has she not been neutered? Um, can she produce puppies so they can breed them for the the, you know, very hungry audience out there of people who are desperate to get puppies and are paying huge amount of money. So it's it's yeah, it is definitely a concern of ours. You've
1: been talking to one family, Keen, whose dog went missing?
10: Yeah, I have. And it really is devastating for families when their dogs go missing. The Davitt family in Dublin is heartbroken after their 11-year-old Jack Russell, Jack, went missing. Here's Lisa Davitt.
12: My dog Jack has gone missing. He went missing between 12.20 and 1.10 on Monday the 22nd of June. He just disappeared. So we, we don't know. We, we feel maybe, maybe he was taken He's my mom's baby. She always referred to him as my baby. She's distraught without him, um, as we all are. We're not eating. We're not sleeping. He's a very valued member of the family.
10: What are your concerns?
12: You know, just petrified that he's, like, fretting and he's upset and he doesn't understand why, why he's not with us anymore and getting cuddles and... Yeah, not the horrible things that you fear that he's going through right now.
10: Can you elaborate on that for me?
12: Yeah, just from what you you hear, the stories of potentially dog fighting rings or being bred on, say, like puppy farms. So I'm just praying that he's, that's not happening to him. We're heartbroken. We're truly devastated and worried. We're crushed, absolutely crushed.
10: Is there any small thing that's now gone from your life?
12: His little face just missing him looking in your eyes and giving you like a lick or a cuddle or a wiggle, like just his company. Honestly, he, and I can't, I can't imagine never seeing him again. It's the not knowing and the, the lack of closure. Do you know, if he passed away, he passed away. You'd grieve him and you'd know it's just, yeah, the torture of wondering what he's going through. And yeah, it's <laughs> I miss him. I need my, I need my jack back. <laughs>
10: Lisa Davitt there. Well, more details on Jack are on the Facebook page, Get Jack Home Safe. And finally, Gardy are aware of dog thefts. Its Crime Prevention Unit has guidelines and warns people to watch their dogs. If a dog is stolen, it should be reported immediately.
5: Three senior Kinahan gang members have pleaded guilty in the UK to drugs and money laundering offences. The convictions are part of a four-year international investigation into drugs and gun crime in the UK supported by the Garda. Assistant Garda Commissioner John O'Driscoll said the convictions were the result of a productive relationship between the Garda and the UK's National Crime Agency.
10: What's important is that uh, those who are involved in the criminal world realise that moving out of this jurisdiction Will not prevent prosecution and will not prevent being pursued by the Garda Shikona, uh, who will forge relationships with whatever law enforcement agency in whatever jurisdiction is relevant in order to make sure that the criminality is tackled in an effective manner.
5: Assistant Commissioner John O'Driscoll we can talk to our crime correspondent Paul Reynolds Good morning Paul Good morning Brian uh, The three here are 52 year old Thomas Kavanagh 37 year old Gary Vickery they're uh, both uh, from Tamworth in the UK or based in Tamworth in the UK and Daniel Canning who's 41 and from Walkinstown in Dublin but I think the key figure here uh, Gardaí believe is Thomas Kavanagh
14: Yeah I mean they're all from Dublin they're all Irish and they're all key figures in the gang but Kavanagh really is the most senior figure the Gardaí say he's 52 years of age uh, some intelligence reports have put him as the number 2 in the criminal in the criminal organization the Kinahan organized crime group. He's originally from Drumna in Dublin but has lived in the UK with his family for the past 15 years. He describes himself as a prestige car dealer. Now we know because the high court has found that the Kinahan and the Byrne organized crime groups which is the Dublin branch have used the motor trade as a slush fund as a money laundering front for years. The gang was buying cars from unknown sources with money from unknown sources with no purchase records. They used people to to front the importation of those cars into Ireland and then back to the UK they used the cars as currency to buy flights, five star hotels and drug deals uh, and the car business was a cover for money laundering, for money earned from crime. Uh, now Thomas Cavan is also a brother-in-law of David and Liam Byrne uh, David is the leader of the of the Dublin branch of the Kinan organi- Organised Crime Gang and that has been established in the High Court David Byrne is also um, Cavanagh's brother-in-law and he was shot dead in the Regency Hotel in February of 2016. Now that murder escaped the ongoing Hutchkinahan feud. Kavanaugh had a lavish lifestyle. He lived in a million euro mansion in Tamworth, in, in, just outside Birmingham in the UK, uh, right in, in, in the quiet area of settled middle England. It was heavily fortified. Uh, it had bulletproof glass. It was covered by an extensive series of CCTV cameras uh, that monitored the house and the grounds. Very expensive cars in the driveway. One of them seized was an Audi R8 Spider. He had access to um, other expensive cars because of the business he was in. He took regular holidays abroad in Mexico over Christmas, two weeks in Dubai, in in Disneyland in Dubai, and we know, of course, that the leadership of the Kenan Organised Crime Group is now based in Dubai. So clearly, then, uh,
5: uh, these are significant uh, convictions. Um, But the significance of this operation, particularly, Paul, in terms of cooperation between the Gardaí and the the UK police?
14: Yeah, I mean, the international dimension is is what makes it very significant. And you heard John O'Driscoll say there uh, that what's very positive about this is that people who leave Ireland, and a lot of criminals have left Ireland, particularly uh, since 1996, since the establishment of the Criminal Assets Bureau, and again, uh, since the feud. Since the Gardaí are still looking for a lot of people in relation to a lot of those murders, in Dublin and a lot of those people are abroad the level of cooperation, uh, the fact that the Garda were able to uh, to work with the N- National Crime Agency and to uh, impress upon the National crime-, crime Agency the importance of these people as targets so that not only the the resources but also the resources of uh, UK law enforcement were focused on people like Daniel Kavanagh who lived uh, in England for a number of years um, as John O'Driscoll has referred to it as de- these gangs as gangs of mutual concern. The Kinahan Organised Crime Group is not just a, a national gang even though mm-hmm. uh, most of the bodies most of the murders have been committed in dublin they're an international gang a gang of international concern and for the Gardaí to be able to convince and work with other police forces in relation to that is certainly a new development
5: and in terms of the financing of the gang's operations uh, presumably, this is uh, this is a crucial blow, a very significant uh, strike against them.
14: Yeah, the—I mean, the, uh, when when um, when the British police began this operation, it took them four years uh, to finalise it. But they seized huge quantities of drugs, over five million euro worth of drugs, drug shipments of cannabis and cocaine that came in through Dover. They also seized large quantities of cash uh, and again firearms as well. And as the special criminal court has established, these these, these effectively. You know, drugs drugs trafficking, firearms trafficking at an international scale. These offences are the raison d'etre of the Kinnahan Organised Crime Group. It's only a week ago since since there was a press conference with the guy that said they were going yep. after the top of the gang. And this is some evidence that there's some success in that direction.
5: Very good, Paul Reynolds, for that. Thank you very much. <laughs>
3: With even more rain on the way today, it's unlikely that a night spent at the beach would be much crack at the moment, but better weather has brought many revelers to the coast in recent weeks for beach parties. And the volunteers who clean up afterwards are warning that such parties are putting an environmentally sensitive coastal landscape at risk. Pranchi Sotuma is founder of Clean Coast Ballynamona in County Cork. Pranchi Sotuma, good morning.
15: Good morning, Gavin.
3: And welcome to Morning Ireland. Tell tell us what happened uh, over the weekend in County Cork.
15: Um, well, I suppose this weekend you had uh, a grouping of slightly older teenagers, maybe early 20s, um, gathering in a special protection area in and Hinch Beach in East Cork. And I suppose it's nothing new for us and it's nothing new for the area. Um, but I suppose they, they party, they bring in a, a lot of stuff, they bring in new camping gear, um, chairs, have fires, uh, lots of alcohol and... Um, they, they really, probably most of the time, only carry themselves out of it and, and um, can, I suppose, to to dispose of tents, they might burn them or not carry their empties out or anything like that. So but look, it, it, it's a regular occurrence. It's, I'm not saying that that's an okay thing to do. I suppose we're just used to it at this stage, uh, cleaning up after, after young people.
3: And when you were cleaning up on Sunday, you found some of the people still there who helped you out cleaning up, is that right? W-
15: in, in fairness they were it, the three that we kind of happened upon who were still there I suppose um, a little bit bleary-eyed were I suppose not expecting us to be arriving down to do a beach clean and look the purpose of, of the beach clean is to go down and pull in marine litter and get out and you know get families out and connect with the sea and, and you know all the, the wonderful mental health benefits that that brings but I suppose when And, you know, we could have 40 or 50 people at at a beach clean. And I suppose in the current times, we're we're restricted to, you know, small numbers. And when you have the small numbers who are are picking up, um, I suppose, a concentration of of beer bottles. And, and, you know, dangerously, you know, broken glass because, you know, if you're flinging a beer bottle at, at distance and it's hitting a stone or a rock, I mean, it's going to break. Um, so I would have had my three-and-a-half, almost four-year-olds, let's say, uh, with me. And, and, you know, when I was talking with, with one of the kids in particular, I just said, look, I've got my young kid here with me. and um, This is broken glass and, you know, it, it's not a safe place. And I says, not to mention that it's a special protection area. Um, but, look, you're trying to talk with them and ask them to spread the word uh, amongst their friends that, you know, it's not the dumb thing because, I suppose, I'm a school teacher, I'm home-school community liaison in a school in Middleton. And, and the kids that I deal with every day are great. And um, you know, there's I, I see model behaviour every day when when we're in school. And um, look, this is just a minority, and, and it's it's grabbing the headlines. I mean, there's so many other good stories out there. You know, um, like we're we're going to be planting seven thousand trees this year. You know. Um, with broadleaf and apple trees for, for communities with the, um, you know, with sponsorship from Cove, Yall and the health services credit unions. So, I mean, like, these are the good stories that aren't getting okay. the, the headlines. It's just the behaviour of the minority. OK. Um, that, that, that's kind of, I suppose, grabbing the headlines.
3: Prunchies, thanks for speaking to us. That's Prunchies a founder of Clean Coast balanomona in County Cork. <laughs>
0: The new COVID-19 contact tracing app went live last night. It's free to download on your mobile devices. Its aim is to identify close contacts of those who test positive for the virus. We will talk to the Health Minister, Stephen Donnelly, about this after half past eight. To explain how it works, we're joined by Adrian Weckler, Technology Editor with Independent Newspapers. Adrian, good to have you on the programme. Um, I downloaded it last night. It's very visual, very easy to work. Will it download on everyone's iPhone or Android?
13: No, it won't. So it won't download on iPhones or Android smartphones that are typically over five or six years old. For your iPhone, you have to have what's called iOS 13.5, and that will work on iPhones from the iphone 6s up so if you have an iphone 6 or an iphone 5 or 5s it won't work on those and similarly with some of the older android smartphones that might be about one in ten smartphones in the market
0: and it works off bluetooth technology
13: it does so it it works in the background constantly uh, and the essentially what it does is sends out what are called beacons. It's sending out small little mini signals to, to try and bounce off other phones that also have this app installed. And the basic idea is that it collects these small signals in a secure area on the phone so that if subsequently you or the other person tests positive um, for COVID-19 and logs or registers that, that there is now a kind of a secure um, collection of, uh, of signals over the last 14 days among phones you might have been in close proximity with. And that way um, it the, those phones the, the owners of those phones can get an alert uh, or a message that they may have been in contact with somebody who, who now has COVID-19.
0: I see so but it needs a lot of buy-ins doesn't it I mean there's a lot of variables here it, it needs uh, people's memories working properly to have the Bluetooth switched on to bring their phones with them and for the technology to work every time.
13: Yeah, I mean, there are two elements there. The first one on the Bluetooth it, it, working in the background, it, most people now will have Bluetooth uh, working pretty much all the time because we depend on Bluetooth on our phones for an awful lot of things. The other thing about whether it works properly uh, or not, that that is still a, a small issue. Some researchers from Trinity College Dublin discovered that it may not be flawless. This works by trying to assess whether you have been within two meters of somebody else for a period of around 15 minutes, but it may not work 100% in enclosed areas like buses or, or, or shops. The other thing is there's a very, very minor effect on battery life. Now, it is only very minor, but both Apple and Google have said that it may have a small effect on battery life.
0: And presumably, it requires over fifty percent, maybe sixty percent, take up by the public for it to be effective. Because I think the HSE's own research shows that it's it's effective at contacting only one in five contacts.
13: Yeah, um, that is also a matter of some speculation among the experts who've looked at this. Most of the people I've spoken to say it. What you really want is a baseline of about 20 or 25 percent for it to have any impact at all, and what you want is around 60 percent penetration if you want this to work really, really well. Now, that is a bit of an issue because there's no country in the world that has received, that has gotten 60% penetration. A handful like Iceland and Singapore are up to around 35, 40%. So, um, but I think the prevailing view is that if at least a quarter, a third of us download it, and there's about 40, 50,000 downloads so far uh, in the last 12 hours, um, it, it should have some impact.
0: Okay. Are there any concerns, uh, Adrian, that our contacts which will be shared through this technology will be shared beyond the health authorities?
13: There were concerns, and this is one of the reasons why the app was delayed, because there was a fairly lengthy data protection impact assessment which was uh, conducted most privacy experts now seem to be reasonably satisfied that the app has passed those tests on that particular issue. There is one small niggle in relation to location. So the app promises that it won't uh, identify the location of your device. And Apple and Google have been very specific about that. But on Android phones and Samsung phones and Huawei phones, You have to have the location setting on your phone switched on for exposure notifications to work and that's not because it's identifying where your device is, that's just how the Bluetooth technology works. But you may have not wanted mm. location on your phone for other reasons, for, for you know, to keep your privacy uh, around other apps. So, that I do expect that to be a, a bit of a niggle that mm. some people might ask about in, in the coming days.
0: And just one other thing, finally, I noticed and many others noticed on their phones last week uh, a COVID 19 logging exposure appearing in the privacy settings the health settings, of the mm. privacy settings. Um, now, mm-hmm. I didn't give permission for that, but d- uh, how did that appear out of nowhere?
13: Both Apple and Google have built in that feature into the latest versions of the operating systems in the phone. It does absolutely nothing unless you download uh, the COVID-19 tracker app and activate it. It's it's built in as part of the underlying technology. Because don't forget, the reason that so many uh, uh, previous Uh, coronavirus tracking uh, contact tracing uh, apps failed was because the technology is very very difficult it took apple and google to come together and and really kind of uh, put put a new layer of technology in for this whole thing to work and that is part of this
0: okay great stuff thank you very much adrian weckler technology editor with independent newspapers The US President Donald Trump
1: has branded the investigation into his tax affairs a witch hunt. His comments follow a Supreme Court ruling that his financial records can be examined by prosecutors in New York. However, in another judgment, the court said the information didn't have to be shared with Congress. Suzanne Lynch, Washington correspondent of the Irish Times, has been giving me the background to the story.
16: Well, there were two parallel cases running. One was that Democrats in Congress, since they've won control of the House of Representatives back in the midterm elections, they have been trying uh, to get access to Donald Trump's financial and tax records. So that was one part of uh, the picture. There was a second case relating to a New York case brought by the district attorney there in New York, who is also uh, wanting to get access to Donald Trump's records because he has opened an investigation essentially into Donald Trump's financial dealings during his time as as the owner of his Trump empire. And that arose from evidence that Michael Cohen, uh, Donald Trump's former lawyer, gave in the course of investigations over the last few years. Um, So as a result, these kind of two strands have been trying to get access to these documents Um, but Donald Trump's lawyers have uh, gone to court over this numerous times and ultimately it ended up in the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court had its final day on Thursday of its term and these judgments were, were long awaited.
1: Now, Donald Trump has said in the past that the records would be made publicly available, just not yet.
16: Mm. So Donald Trump has always been under political pressure on this issue. Unusually, when he was appointed president, uh, he kept Uh, overall control, really, of his business. And he broke with precedent by not publishing his tax returns. All presidents since the years of Richard Nixon have published their tax returns, Joe Biden, who will face Donald Trump most likely in November, he's already published his financial details. Uh, Voters in this country expect that. Donald Trump, when he ran for office in 2015-16, promised he would release his tax returns. We're now into the fourth year of his presidency and he has not. He has said a few times that it's because his his business, his taxes are under audit, Um, but really uh, he is now, I suppose, punting on the fact that his supporters don't seem to Mind, he's kind of got away with it this far, and now with these judgments, it looks like uh, he will definitely not have to uh, publicise his documents before November. Because what these two judgments do, even though in the principle of law, they mostly say that Donald Trump will need to give his uh, give access to his tax and financial documents, ultimately. It's not going to happen before November because in both cases it's been pushed back to lower courts. So we're expecting further litigation, further challenges by the Trump administration in the next few months.
1: These are divisive times, even whether or not to wear a face covering has become political Mm -hmm. in America. And he is under pressure on a number of fronts at the moment.
16: Yeah, I think the last few months have been very difficult for Donald Trump. The polls are suggesting that he's trailing Joe Biden nationally, but also uh, in key swing states, states like uh, Pennsylvania, Michigan, uh, those kind of states that went for Donald Trump uh, the last time around, um, and, and even states that for the last few decades have voted Republican, states like Texas, Georgia. Democrats are now seeing a possibility that they could turn those states uh, in November. Now, it's early days. We still four months to the election. Anything could happen. But, undoubtedly, you've had a number of factors in the last few months. Primarily, Donald Trump's handling of the coronavirus pandemic um, has been widely criticized. And secondly, his handling of the uh, protests over the death of George Floyd Rather than seek to unify the country, again, he has tried to stoke cultural divisions. um, And he looks like he's going back to this playbook of division, of racial, um, of racial difference, of cultural divides as he moves forward to to November. But this time the polls are showing that that may not work for him at this point. I've
1: seen all sorts of speculation over the past couple of weeks as to what he might do to reinvigorate the campaign. I mean, there was even some speculation this week that he might dump Mike Pence in terms of, you know, to bring Mm -hmm. on somebody who who might bring a bit more pizzazz to the ticket. Mm -hmm. But then, as he's very fond of pointing out, nobody gave him a chance in 2016 either.
16: It's true. And uh, he, he is gambling on that again. And I think we do need to remember that Donald Trump got lucky in a lot of ways in 2016. He won, crucially, a few swing states by a tiny margin of votes. Um, I think Hillary Clinton was an unpopular uh, politician for a large uh, proportion of the electorate. Um, so uh, I think the dynamics are different now. The country has had four years of Donald Trump. Before that, of course, they didn't know what his presidency was going to be like. Um, so at the moment, I think he's running on that same playbook, but I think the dynamics have changed. So it's un- unclear if it's going to work from this time. As I say, though, you know, polls were wrong the last time around. Uh, anything could happen in the next four months. And as you say, they're doing something dramatic, like picking a different vice president, maybe a development in foreign policy could really change the dynamic of this election.
1: And that was Suzanne Lynch of the Irish Times in Washington.
0: You've been listening to a selection of stories from this week's Morning Ireland.